Full Service Radio is proudly supported and hosted by Simplecast, the easiest way for a podcast creator to publish and distribute audio on the internet. For more information, visit Simplecast.com. Full Service Radio. My name is Danielle Vogel, and you're listening to Everyday Enviro on Full Service Radio, a show about the little things you can do to minimize your personal carbon footprint. This show is all about empowering you to take control of the pace of environmental progress you're making just by being a little bit more mindful about the way you eat, drink, shop, and think. If fighting climate change is something that's important to you, or possibly just something you're curious to learn more about, please consider subscribing to Everyday Enviro wherever you get your podcasts. Today, I'm joined by Good Food visionary Sarah Weiner, the creator of the National Good Food Awards. We're coming to you for a little mini episode from the annual Good Food Mercantile in New York City. So please excuse the background noise. Sarah, welcome. Thank you so much for having me. Oh my goodness. So we're very lucky to have Sarah on the show. She is truly a visionary in the good food movement. So we're going to try to pack a lot into the next 15 minutes. Start at the beginning, Sarah. What are the Good Food Awards? Mm. So the Good Food Awards are a way to recognize the people who are buying a lot of stuff from farmers, but from like awesome farmers who are really, really thoughtful and taking care of the earth and transforming it into something that has even more value, um, like jam, pickles, cheese, beer, spirits. Um, So we're in our 10th year now. We have 790 companies that have won a good food award. Um, And it's really great because these people deserve attention and consumers also want to eat things that taste really, really good, but also do good things for the earth. And it's really hard to figure out what that is. Um, But when you see the little blue Good Food World seal, you know you have found it. Yes, it is the endorsement that not only was this created carefully, but it was created by somebody who cares about their community, their workforce, and the environment. Yes, and that it's really, really tasty. Because 300 people taste it. Number one. Like Alice Waters and Michael Pollan have been judges. So, (laughs) So, you know, like not everyday palates. No, Samin Nostrat. Yeah, these people all are. Danielle Vogel has been a judge. (laughs) Um, So what motivated you to create the Good Food Awards? Well... It was kind of the confluence of two lovely experiences. So the first one, Slow Food Nation, 2008, San Francisco, big, big project, 85,000 people, um, Alice Waters' idea. I helped her with this project, and my main part was working with like the value-added food producers, the kind of people we now call food crafters, the same kind of people that win good food awards. Um, and there were folks in all different... Um, kinds of uh, categories so like we had a cheese pavilion and a pickles pavilion and an oil pavilion and at the end of the day and like leaders in all these fields were sort of like volunteering to help mobilize the best of the country and at the end of the day we had a post-mortem with all these leaders and they said you know what no one ever brings us together across categories like we never have a reason as the jam people to meet the chocolate people or the chocolate people to meet the coffee people and they were learning so much from each other So they were like, we would love to um, do another project, you know, that has some kind of the same feel where we're working with each other instead of like siloed. So thinking about that was in England, met a grocer. He was real friendly. He had a beautiful little shop. I was looking at his shelves, saw a jar with a little gold sticker that said Great Taste Award winner. He saw me eyeing it, and he was like, oh, yeah, if it's like a Great Taste Award winner, it flies off the shelf. 
So I thought, well, this may be a way. Yes, well, duh. Like, let's use that power of the best of the best for the good people. So brought it kind of together. So you mentioned that these crafters wanted a chance to collaborate. Have there been any collaborations that have come out of the Good Food Awards? Yeah. Um, so many. Uh, the latest, one of the latest that I heard of is um, Smoking Goose, which is this beautiful charcuterie shop uh, out in Indianapolis. Uh, is collaborating with Lady Edison Ham, which is another beautiful charcuterie maker, like traditional southern hams, but with like really, really good uh, pork. Uh, and then uh, South Carolina, North Carolina. Um, anyway, they're making like Lady Goose charcuterie. Like, oh, that's adorable. Yeah, yeah isn't that adorable? So it's like a collab line. <laughs> yes, they're that's making awesome. like collab charcuterie. I love that. I know. Um, my personal favorite uh. is Lindera Farms Vinegar out mm-hmm. of Virginia. Met up with J.K. Dickinson Salts out of mm-hmm. West Virginia, and they created um, a vinaigrette together. Oh. Yeah, so Daniel from Lindera Farms had never done anything other than, I, I, I hate to minimize because his vinegars are spectacular, mm-hmm. but he had only done straight line vinegars, and now mm-hmm. he has a value-added product that is the result of a collaboration, and the two of them met because they were tabling next to each other at the Good Food Awards. That is so cool. So cool. All right, so Sarah, I know you're in the middle of a very busy day. You're hosting the Good Food Mercantile, so let's get right to it. So today, we're going to be discussing the economics of the Good Food Movement a topic on which you have done a lot of critical thinking, and so I'm excited to get your thoughts. So let's start by defining the term good food. What, is mm. the, what do those words mean to you? Mm. Well, we say tasty, authentic, and responsible. So tasty, mm, pretty self-explanatory. Mm-hmm. Um, authentic, uh, we use two meanings for that. The one is like real, real stuff, like not artificial junk, not um, GMO stuff, um, like real ingredients. Um, but the other meaning of authentic that's really important to us and that's a little bit harder to explain is really um, tied to uh, just cultural traditions and like, you know, what is authentic and connected to people and culture and, and, and you know, passion and spirit. Because um, that's such an important part of food and experiencing food and what we celebrate and what matters to me about food. Right. So we're talking about the real stuff that gets you excited, not the like niche, weird, trendy stuff you might find all over the floor at the Javits Center at the fancy food. Yeah, that doesn't as much do it for me. <laughs> but um, and then <laughs> and then responsible, tasty, authentic, responsible, and responsible. You know, responsible to the environment, responsible to the people making it, responsible to the farmers. Um, yeah. So when you envision sort of the future of the good food movement, what do you have in mind? What does the future look like for this good food that we're mm. cultivating and supporting? To me, the, the future of good food, the, the world that I want to live and eat in is one where there's all different kinds of producers. And it's one where, like, you go to South Carolina to the beach for your vacation or whatever, and you're meeting and discovering totally different things that are tied to, like, a different tradition, you know, that's using the seafood that, like, they're you know, getting from the ocean out there and it's not, you know, making the same thing that you're finding out in California when you're spending time there. Um, But I think it's like so important that it's a lot of different small and medium and maybe a few large size companies because, you know, just like we talk about biodiversity and our, you know, food supply, like we don't just want to have one strain of corn because it's very um, non-robust 
to, to shocks. Mm-hmm. You know, like something happens, there's a big storm, there's a, there's a pest, all of our corn stock is gone. You know, you want just different things with different strengths. I feel the same is true about our society and like business structures. Like we want a lot of different people who all have a way of doing things so that there's um, like diversity and robustness and, and it's a whole system. For sure. It sounds like we're looking for the two eyes, indigenous and made with integrity. Oh, yeah. Yeah, for sure. All right. So uh, that being said, lots of people think that the types of food we're talking about, responsibly sourced, mindfully crafted products that are made, you know, usually in very small batches by people who care a lot about their workforce and their community, is too expensive. Mm -hmm. They think it's, air quotes, not for them. Mm -hmm. What are your thoughts on those assumptions? Mm -hmm. Well, I totally understand, first of all. Um, And second of all, I think it's totally... It's exactly what we need to address head-on as a food movement to move forward. And as a society, like, Americans pay less as a percentage of their total income than any other, uh, like, you know, first-world country in the whole world. So when it comes down to it, we're spending less of our wealth on food than anyone else. Um, So we have to think a little bit about what what you spend your money on is an indicator of what you value. Mm -hmm. Uh, so I think as a society, we should be uh, valuing the most fundamental thing of life, which is like air, Nour- water, land, and nourishment, and nourishment yeah. all of which are tied to better food. And the thing is that, yes, it is more expensive um, because if, you know, instead of packing a thousand heads of cattle into like one acre or, you know, whatever, uh, and the um, not caring about the negative externalities of like, okay, now there's manure ponds and now the local river is all ruined. And now there is like all these sorts of problems to the surrounding communities. Um, Instead, you're packing just like 10 or 20 of these heads of cattle into this space and you have like grazing land and the earth is getting better and other things are growing and the communities are thriving and you're creating jobs for people instead of like mechanizing everything that costs more Mm -hmm. Um, but it's worth more Um, but I think the really really important thing to remember here is like there's two ways to look at it like is it that the food is too expensive or is it that um, not enough people have enough wealth yes and I feel or or there's a third option which Mm. is that we have so deflated the true value of food Mm. because food is bred in this country to be transportable as opposed to consumable yes um, that we have a completely warped notion of how much food should cost yes Uh, I think it's kind of a mix of those latter two options Mm -hmm. because you know when I I had a kind of formative experience um, uh, when I was an exchange student in Italy um, I was visiting Sicily I was in the cab I didn't even speak very good Italian but um, somehow the cab driver just started talking to me about mozzarella cheese he was like going off on all the kinds of mozzarella cheese and this and that and this is what's better and I was like this is a cab driver who's like so educated on his local kind of cheese like um, that's amazing and that's what many societies are are built on Mm -hmm. like people have a high level of taste education and food is an integral part of joy and an integral part of life and that's and culture and culture and that's not elitist that's like just like it's um, a point of pride yes it's a point of pride and it's just like being proud of your city or proud of your landscape they're proud of their food um and it's for everyone and that's what that's what i want for our 
culture too. And there's no reason that it shouldn't be that way. In fact, the, the reason it is the way it is now is like super, super twisted. Mm-hmm. We take it for granted, but like eight people have the same amount, the eight most wealthy people in the world have the same amount of wealth as the 50% uh, lowest wealth people in the world. That is twisted. And of course, there's tons of people who can't play the real value of food because eight people in the world have, have the half the wealth. <laughs> But that's not a problem that farmers should be asked to solve, the 2% of our population who are farmers. Like, oh, well, you know, you need to make your food cheaper because um, it's not those 2% of the population's job to fix that. Mm -hmm. It's all of our job. And I would argue it's more of a responsibility of those who have more wealth to help make that change. So I actually want to, I love the way you just framed that. I want to drill down on it a little bit harder because this is something you and I have discussed sort of at length in the past, which is that we have a shared belief that it's the responsibility of people who care about sustainability to shop like it matters to them, which means choosing food that represents those priorities. Mm -hmm. So can you kind of share your thoughts on that? Sure. Well, I have this whole... I have this whole theory because, you know, people say like, oh, yeah, it's true. Like, okay, I get it. Food should cost more if it's like more thoughtfully made and takes more time and more expertise. But like, how can that work? Because so many people just are just barely getting by. You can't ask them to, you know, make their food budget bigger. I completely agree. It is not their responsibility. However, I believe that if the top 30 percent and maybe this, you know, maybe it's the top 25 percent or maybe it's the top 35 percent. But if the top, let's just say 30 percent of earners in this country. These are people who are making $60,000, $70,000 and up a year. Take, take it upon themselves to uh, buy more aligned with their values, more organic, more sustainable, more from companies that are paying living wages. Then suddenly, instead of mm, 5 or 6% of the, of the food uh, you know, budget of the country going towards these like good companies, suddenly you have 25 or 30 or 35%. That's like... Uh, seven times, 700% like increase in the demand for good stuff. That's 700% of stuff being diverted from the industrial food system to the good food system. Big companies are going to massively respond. Mm-hmm. Like they're responding when it's um, increasing, you know, right now the... Demand for organics yes. is a perfect example. Exactly. Like companies are buying up little companies, like Kellogg's and, you know, yeah. General Mills. are Walmart. Yes. They're, like, changing their shelves. They're talking about yes, it. the number one purchaser of organic food now in the country is Walmart. Wow. You know, I mean, when the, when the demand makes itself known, it mm-hmm. raises an opportunity to these big companies, and you can really move markets that way. Mm-hmm. So can you talk a little bit about the notion of economies of scale as it sure. relates to the good food movement? Sure. Well... Of course, there you know there is economies of scale, and that like uh, with, if with the same amount of infrastructure, you can just have it running longer than the incremental cost of making like um, one more box of beautiful crackers um, is like so much you know is very small. Um, so like if there's so much more demand, you know, a lot of great food companies could lower their prices a little mm-hmm. bit. However, I feel that <laughs> people put a lot of faith in this economies of scale. Oh, that's what's going to make organic food and great food, you know, quality values driven food be the same cost as what we're paying now for like two ninety nine a dozen but it crap eggs. Be. But it shouldn't be. The eggs value- shouldn't cost two ninety nine a dozen. No. I mean, the value proposition yeah. is fundamentally dissimilar. Yes. Yes. And it's like uh, twisted, you 
you know, it's not that um, we're only paying $2.99 for those eggs. It's that the buyer of those eggs is only paying $2.99, but, like, the economic value being paid is being paid by the community whose, um, like, property value is decreasing yeah, so because of the, the crop popu- p- pollution, you know, that the farmer is making. And yep. it's just that um, the person buying it isn't made to pay for it. It's, like, the poor communities around those, like, industrial farms made to pay for it without having the choice. Yep. So really, cheap food just oppresses the oppressed, is what I have to say. And seen. <laughs> <Yes>. <laughs> okay, so I'm going to wrap it up. Sarah, you don't... Guys, Sarah is hosting like 600 people in the room next door. I really can't take much more of her time, but this is a show about small behavioral changes that can help minimize your personal carbon footprint. So do you have any tips for people who are looking to maybe purchase food that's both good for them and good for the environment and or pro tips on how you've minimized your personal carbon footprint? Yeah, absolutely. Buy more expensive food. <laughs> but but I would preface that by saying, like, you can do it without even changing your budget. I mean, for example, like, if I'm going to someone's house for a dinner party, like, I could buy them a pretty crappy $20 bottle of wine, or I could buy them a gorgeous one-pound chunk which is enough for like 10 people mm-hmm. of a beautiful cheese made by a farmer that cares with like very happy animals. Like, and what's more special? Right. Like the and what are they going to remember? Yeah. What are they going to keep talking about months and years later? Yes, exactly. Like you can think about where, you know, where you're spending. I mean, another thing is like, I really like to eat a lot of food that's not um, uh, like meat driven. I also like meat, mm-hmm. but like, you know, certain things um, cost a lot more inherently, including meat. So, like, I can get the best vegetables from the most, like, thoughtful farmer and, like, feast on them one night, you know, or three nights and have meat, like, one night instead of having, like, mediocre meat four nights. Absolutely. And not only that, but that is a fantastic move for the environment. Fantastic move! We know how energy intensive it is to raise meat. We're not saying you shouldn't eat it at all, but it should punctuate rather than sustain your diet. Yeah. And if what you're looking to do is stretch your food dollar, spend it on vegetables, it goes a whole lot further. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Um, okay, Chef, thank you so much for talking with me today. I'm feeling really empowered to continue working to advance the good food movement one bite at a time. Thank you, Sarah. Thanks, Chef. And thank you for listening to Everyday Enviro on Full Service Radio. If you like the show, please consider subscribing wherever you get your podcasts. And in any event, we'll catch you again next week on Everyday Enviro when we'll be chatting with urban farmer Chelsea Barker about single-use plastics. It's going to be a good one. Talk then. Bye, friends. Thanks for listening to this program on Full Service Radio, broadcasting and recording from the Line Hotel in Adams Morgan, Washington, D.C. Full Service Radio programming can be accessed live and archived on fullserviceradio.org. Our talk programming is available on most podcast apps like iTunes and Stitcher, and our DJ sets are available on mixcloud.com slash fullserviceradio. Full Service Radio features over 30 weekly shows and over 50 local hosts covering every topic imaginable. If you want to be a guest or get involved, email us at info at fullserviceradio.org. Follow us on Twitter at FullServiceRDO, on Instagram and Facebook at Full Service Radio. Thanks for listening.